Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com. Joined by nobody this week. This week it's it's just me, John. Uh, he had a pre-planned vacation for right after the deadline, but I think after how crazy the deadline is, it, it worked worked well for him. Give him some time to rest up. It was a very busy season for us, as always. Um, but yeah, it's just me this time. I figured I would hop on for a bit of a shorter episode. I, I hope at least. <laughs> That's the plan. I guess you guys can tell already by the timestamp on the episode. But I, I figured I would hop on. Uh, talk a little bit about the deadline, just go over some of the uh, the key deals and key takeaways from the deadline, as well as provide a bit of a programming update and what to expect from uh, BaseballTradeValues.com within the next uh, couple months or so. So I guess there's no reason to uh, really stall at all. Uh, let's get right into it. Uh, so I'll go ahead and start out with the site updates and uh, and kind of programming notes for the near future. So this is going to be our last podcast for a little bit. Uh, we don't have an exact schedule yet of when we're going to be coming back, but we're going to take a brief hiatus from the podcast. You know, there isn't a whole lot to talk about now that the trade deadline is done. Uh, there's obviously going to be off-season trades, uh, but there's no reason to get really in the works about rumors and speculation for those right now. Right now, the focus should really be on last two months of the season and the playoffs and all of the exciting races and and Juan Soto with his new team and, and all of these fun storylines. Um, so, so we're going to take a bit of a backseat. We are, after after a bit of a brief hiatus, we are going to be coming back with both updates to the site, uh, both behind the scenes and hopefully externally. I, I don't want to announce anything yet because I don't think we have a great framework of what is going to happen when quite yet. Uh, but we have some new features and enhancements and quality of life stuff that we'd really like to get to. And really this kind of this kind of quiet stretch between the deadline and the offseason is our best chance to do that. So we are going to be prioritizing some of that. We're going to be trying to enhance the model itself, both with some takeaways from this deadline, as well as just the process uh, of updating the values on the site in the hopes of being able to update them more frequently in the future. We already made some really big strides with that on this uh, coming into this deadline. And that was in large part, thanks to the two new analysts we have on board, Alex Havers and Dan Bannon. So thank you to them. They've been doing a ton of work behind the scenes uh, to help improve the models and the updating process. Um, but yeah, that, that's going to be a big priority. We are going to come back with some of our usual content as well. Eventually the podcast will be back. Uh, we'll also have the roster revamp series from last off season coming back. We'll have John's this trade in history series and probably some new stuff. We'll have to see. Uh, but just wanted to give that upfront that do not expect a podcast episode for the next few weeks. At least uh, we will we will go ahead and try to provide more information when we can from a programming perspective, um, uh, provide that information probably on Twitter and possibly in the newsletter as well. So keep an eye out on those two spots, but for now, just enjoy the rest of the season. It should be a really fun stretch run here and, and a really competitive October with the expanded playoffs. So now that that is out of the way, let's get into how the model performed at this trade deadline, kind of our uh, our summary piece that John always writes up after the deadline, after the offseason, just kind of gives an update on how things are going, if there were any notable trends, notable takeaways from the performance and what we might want to look at with the model. So I will link this article in the description as well as I will, uh, in the show notes, excuse me, I will link this episode, or, wow, I will link this article in the show notes as well as the trade deadline roundup article 
And that was written by myself and Dan and Alex, who I mentioned earlier, they contributed as well. That's going to be a great one-stop shop for all of the trades that went down this trade season. I'm not going to get into every single one of them. I'm only going to get into a handful of them right now. And it, it, it would be a little bit redundant, a little bit repetitive if John and I hopped on and talked about everything that's already been written up there and tweeted up on on our account and, and all of that good stuff. So if you have any questions, want to see any analysis, see how any of the values worked out for any specific trades, go ahead and hop into that roundup article, which like I said, will also be linked in the show notes below. But first the takeaways from the deadline. So uh, we're going back to June for these trades. We're going to count that as the trade season, June through the August 2nd deadline. Uh, so this summer there were 52 total trades and 48 of those 52 were accepted by the model so that's a 92.3 percent acceptance rate by the model and that's pretty well in line with our, our usual standard our, our usual rates between 90 and 95 percent and that's kind of right within that range so uh, a pretty normal deadline normal summer season for us uh, from an accuracy perspective as far as the specific breakdown of those uh, 34 of those 52 trades were just completely accepted as fair, you know, right in line with values, well, well within our normal margin of error, very close. Uh, another 10 were accepted as a minor overpay by one team. So yeah, still within the margin of error, but just a little bit lopsided. Uh, one was accepted as a moderate overpay by one team. Three were accepted as a major overpay by one team, team and four were rejected altogether because the gap was too large in values. So those four trades I will be going a little bit more in depth on uh, in this podcast episode, just to kind of explain what happened on those. But essentially, with these, with this distribution, uh, both between the acceptance rate and then just what type of acceptance each one was, 34 being right on the mark, 10 being pretty close, one being, you know, a little farther away, and three being just barely accepted by the model, that's very standard uh, for our model's history, uh, a very standard distribution. Uh, it's essentially a bell curve. Most of the trades are bunched together in the middle and, and accepted, and a lesser amount are reasonable overpays, and then just a few that were rejected. So very normal for us, very solid trade deadline. Uh, we are going to keep looking into a couple things. Um, a few of the notes that John had on the deadline, and as I mentioned, I will link to this article, so I'm not going to be reading this verbatim or anything. Uh, relievers were a bit of... Uh, an issue for us as they always are. I, I believe it's improved overall. Uh, last trade deadline, we, we talk about it a lot. The John Curtis trade was really out of line for us. We had John Curtis, who was having a decent season for the Marlins, but, you know, kind of a veteran guy, not proven, but had a lot of team control. And he was traded to the Brewers for a really light return. And we were a bit confused by that. We took a closer look at the model and at the market and we kind of came to the realization that teams don't typically pay much for additional years of team control in relievers and that's just because relievers are so volatile as it is typically if you're acquiring a reliever you're doing so for the short term you have an immediate relief need and yeah maybe for the next season or two that'll be useful as well but the farther out you get the less you can bank on a reliever continuing to be good unless it's an elite guy a Josh Hader or a Liam Hendricks one of the top top closers in baseball you're not typically going to project uh, or you're, you're not typically going to include your 2025 projections for a reliever into okay should I trade for this guy right now because those 2025 projections have massive error bars on them just because relievers are so volatile and, and one injury or one you know one of their pitches takes a step back and, and suddenly they're unusable so 
we did see an improvement in the relief model for sure. Uh, guys like Scott Efros and Jorge Lopez and Matt Bush, each of those three guys had additional years of control and really had interesting profiles that you would think would make them very difficult to value. But we nailed each of those trades, especially Scott Efros. We had that was uh, Scott Efros to the Yankees for uh, Hayden Wesneski, a pitching prospect and prospect, excuse me. And we had those values just right in line. We had Efros at 9.3 million and Wesneski at 9.1. So that one in particular was a big win, and it told us we were on the right track with our relief model. Um, on the other hand, and I'll get into these more a little bit later specifically, but Rysel Iglesias. Jake Diekman and Anthony Bass were kind of the headliners of three of the four trades that were rejected by the model. So there's something there. And it could just be as simple as different teams with how volatile relievers are. Different teams themselves within their own models might value them differently than ours. And so some teams, you know, Rysel Iglesias, for example, we had that uh, with, with the uh, Braves taking on such a hefty contract and Iglesias not being quite his usual self this year. We had his contract a little bit underwater, yet the Braves still gave up some talent for him. And it's a bit of a head-scratcher, but you think back, and back in 2019, they did the same exact thing with Mark Melanson. They picked up a contract from the Giants that looks like it was a little bit underwater at the time, uh, but they still gave up positive value in exchange for it. So it might just be a consistent trend with them. Maybe they place some sort of an emphasis on the proven closer uh, that we don't in our model, or, or to a further extent than we do in our model. Uh, it could be something else entirely, but just an idea there. Uh, and like I said, we'll get into those three relievers and, and their trades and what went wrong a little bit more in depth later. Um, one other, one of the moderate overpays, or I believe it was a major overpay actually, uh, was the Edmundo Sosa trade. And I believe we might have talked about that on the last podcast episode, uh, but just in case we didn't, Edmundo Sosa is a glove first infielder. No real offensive track record aside from kind of a hot stretch in 2021, but it wasn't supported at all by minor league numbers. And he was out of options. And he was kind of forced off the roster in St. Louis. He wasn't performing at the big league level for them, and they want to win right now, while Paul DeYoung, who started off the year pretty awful, uh, was tearing it up in AAA, and they wanted to give him another shot. So what happened there was Sosa got forced off the roster, the Phillies decided they would take a chance on a, on a glove because they have been a defensively atrocious team. And they traded Jojo Romero, who has zero value, essentially, <laughs> for Sosa, who we had at about $6 million. And so that's just kind of a, a wake-up call to us. We kind of missed Sosa with our usual glove-first, no-bat infielder adjustment that we apply. It's typically been applied to second baseman primarily, uh, but this is a bit of a wake-up call. It needs to be applied more consistently across all glove-first infielders, which makes some sense. You know, those defense-first players are kind of a dime a dozen. You can always find somebody with a good glove on waivers or uh, as a minor league deal, minor league free agent, or a minor league trade or something like that. Um, it's The teams are really only looking to pay, only looking to pay or trade for guys who can hit as well. And then uh, kind of this last section of the article, uh, of John's article that, that I'll take a look at here, is prospects. So we want to talk about Jordan Groshans a little bit more later. That was another one of, that was with the Anthony Bass deal that was rejected. Um, additionally, the Brandon Marsh for Logan Ohapi trade, that one was accepted, but I believe it was a moderate overpay uh, by the Angels. 
And this is just because of a trend that we've talked about in the past where we can only be so, so up to date with prospects because we are not personally prospect evaluators. We do not come up with any of the numbers for these prospects on our own, really. We might have some slight market adjustments that we apply or injury risk adjustments. But uh, the, the vast majority of a prospect's value comes from the prospect sources, the public-facing evaluators. And so we can only really update these prospects as often as the public evaluators do so. So we're you know more than halfway through the season, and, and luckily Baseball America has been fantastic this year. Uh, Baseball America specifically, they've updated kind of their cadence of how they release their prospect updates, and they managed to get all of the prospects, all of the systems updated prior to the trade deadline. And that was huge for us because in previous years, we would have a deal go through it and be like, this is way out of line. And then we'd see a tweet from either Baseball America themselves or one of their contributors that said, oh, this guy was set to go down 10 spots in next week's list that we, we haven't published yet. And then you input the adjusted value to kind of account for that. And it goes, oh, okay, now it's a fair deal. So had a lot of that in the past. Didn't really have quite as much of that this year because Baseball America uh, kind of moved their timeline of updates up. And so thank you very much to them for that. Big lifesavers there. Uh, but there are other prospect sources we use and kind of blend with Baseball America's opinions. We don't want to just uh, limit it to the to one source. And some of those other sources did not quite update their, their values uh, and their rankings in time. So that's why you see a guy like Jordan Groshans, who was formerly pretty highly regarded, but is just having a terrible season this year. Uh, he, he was traded away for a couple of relievers, and that one was rejected by the model. That's kind of why. Uh, it's also why you see Brandon Marsh for Logan Ohapi go one for one. Ohapi has a lot of helium. He's trending up. Marsh hasn't had a great major league debut. He, he's got basically a full season under, under his belt, and he's been a below average hitter. So he's trending a bit down, and that kind of factors, the, when you factor those in, that, that brings those two pretty close to each other. So as I mentioned many times, this article will be linked in the show notes. Uh, to check it out for yourself. There are a few things from the article that I did not ch uh, touch on yet, so please go give it a read. Very informative, and uh, it's a great wrap-up of kind of how we did and what we're looking at going forward as far as the model goes. Now I want to talk about Juan Soto. <laughs> so I, I I don't know where to start here. I, I guess the best place to start is probably that uh, AJ Preller hates us. <laughs> he must have read my article that said that Juan Soto was untradeable, and he said, no, thank you. you I'm going to make you look silly. I'm going to make you eat those words. I'm going to go trade for him, and so he did. Uh, obviously, not what happened. But once again, AJ Preller kind of defies the norms, bucks the trend, whatever whatever metaphor you'd like to use there, and he just sold his whole farm, essentially, <laughs> to go get the guy he wanted, and it it works. So uh, there, there's a couple ways you can look at this from, from the Nationals' perspective. Um, by our values here, we had Soto at 165.6 million, and Josh Bell, who was also traded to San Diego in the deal, at 5.7 million. And the return, the prospect package they got back, C.J. Abrams, Robert Hassel, Mackenzie Gore, James Wood, Harleen Susanna, and then Luke Voigt is kind of a throw-in. Um, that only came out to $143 million in prospect return here. So this was accepted by the model as a minor underpay by San Diego. You might be a bit confused by that. You know, it's $170 million plus compared to $143 million, but you have to remember it's a, it's a percentage-based system on, on whether it's accepted. Uh, this return was roughly 80-85% of Soto and Bell's value, so 
it checks out within kind of the usual margin of error because the more the higher up you get and the more prospects you have involved kind of the larger that margin of error becomes so accepted by the model minor overpay by san diego and you can look at it from one perspective as the nationals didn't get fair value for soto you know maybe i was wrong that soto was untradeable but maybe you take it a step further in my article that it wouldn't be possible for the nationals to get fair value for him maybe i was right about that you, you could make that argument and they didn't get fair value here uh, they left a little bit on the table they just kind of took the best offer they had you can also argue that that was the correct approach it's pretty likely that if they waited until october or, uh, not october excuse me if they waited until november december this off season to trade soto you're losing out on two months of soto you're losing out on a postseason run of soto and you're losing out on the most the highest surplus months that are left on soto's current years of team control because right now he's making the lowest salary he's making 17 million and that's just going to spike the next two years in arbitration. He's going to be setting some arbitration records for sure. And so he's he's obviously very young and still in the midst of his prime. And, you know, this has been a bit of a down year by his standards. So it's reasonable to expect that his field value could increase a little bit each of the next two years as well as he ages into kind of his the, the traditional aging peak and perhaps rebounds from this somewhat down season he's having. But even if it does it is more likely than not that his arbitration figures for the next two years are going to outpace his field value increases. So basically he's going to have less surplus value each of the next two years because he's getting more expensive. That makes sense. Um, and so between that and between missing out on the two months and the playoff run, his value is going to come down pretty considerably between now and November. And so you figure you don't necessarily need to meet Obviously, you want to get close as close to fair value for him as you can right now. But you don't necessarily need to meet that lofty 170 million number. You just need to beat that kind of off-season ex expectation by enough that it that it kind of outweighs the possibility that you extend him, essentially. Or or maybe I don't know. Maybe he goes absolutely insane, has a hot second half like he usually does, and and his value doesn't decrease all that much. There's a little bit of risk there. So. You're not trying to necessarily match his value exactly. You're just trying to outperform the expected offseason value while accounting for the possibility of an extension and the possibility that his value won't decrease all that much into the offseason. So that's one way to look at it. And I think if you look at it that way, the Nationals did excellent here. And they definitely cleared that kind of off-season bar that they needed to. And then from that point, once you've cleared that bar, it's a bit of a matter of perspective. You look at the three teams that were pretty heavily in on Juan Soto. It's the Padres, who obviously got him, the Dodgers, and the Cardinals. We talked in the past that Dodgers are not necessarily the best fit for him because their headliner would be catching prospect Diego Cartaya, where... The Nationals just picked up catching prospect Cabert Ruiz from the Dodgers last year, and he's kind of their catcher of the future. So it would have made for a crowded situation, and, and you know, you're, you're typically supposed to draft and trade for best value available and not necessarily positions of need. But once you get closer to the big leagues like that, and Ruiz is in the big leagues, Cartaya is probably a year off, you can start considering those positional adjustments, especially for catchers. It's not like oh, we have a big league shortstop and we can trade for this shortstop prospect as well and just shift him to second or third base or the outfield or wherever. 
catchers derive a lot of their value from being able to be catchers. And so there's not as you're, you're kind of limiting yourself. If you trade for an extra <laughs> top catching prospect to go to with the great young catcher you already have, or, or the promising young catcher you already have. So the Dodgers didn't make as much sense of a fit from that perspective. Plus they might've been hesitant to deal Gavin Lux in the in, in the trade because he's been a good contributor for them at the big league level. And, you know, theoretically you're improving on that by getting Juan Soto, but you'd rather hang on to Lux and have both if you can, especially if you're the Dodgers and you already have a pretty high payroll and Lux is pretty cheap right now. And then the Cardinals had some concerns of their own uh, as far as they've really never pushed their their budgets way high. They're kind of a mid-market team that is able to act like a big market team sometimes because of their fan base, because of attendance, because of how, how well they develop talent and acquire it and etc but they're not a team that's typically going to be pushing the luxury tax year after year and that's kind of what you would have been looking at if you're the cardinals and you have paul goldschmidt and nolan arnado already on the books pretty expensive and you're picking up soto and potentially even looking to extend him as well so that that's kind of an, an issue for them Plus, the deal might have cost them some major league depth as well, and they weren't quite as equipped to lose big league depth as the Padres and Dodgers were. And it's, you know, it could just be a factor of the Nationals didn't like Dylan Carlson as much as our model does. That's definitely possible. He's a bit of a controversial, a bit of a divisive player right now. And so there's a lot of factors that could explain why, even if the Dodgers or the Cardinals could have put together a higher valued offer, maybe the Nationals preferred this Padres offer. And it's, it's a haul. Like, I'm very hesitant to call, I was on, and I'll link to this one as well, I was on Robbie Hyde's Wednesday YouTube show uh, to talk trades and to kind of recap the deadline, go over winners and losers from the deadline, and I told him there, I'm hesitant to call the Nationals a winner here because they traded Juan Soto. It's not a win. I That, that doesn't feel right. But if you're operating under the assumption that they had to trade Juan Soto, that it was ownership mandated, et cetera, et cetera, and you tell me, all right, they had to trade Juan Soto, now what do you think of it? In that context, they did really well here. They got some really promising prospects, and I think a couple of them, uh, specifically James Wood and, and maybe Abrams, uh, the Nationals, and, and Susanna, I should say, he's a bit of a rising guy. Uh, I think the Nationals might be higher on those guys than the model is especially James Wood. I, I know he's pretty divisive himself. He's uh, a massive hulking guy out there in the outfield, and there's questions about whether he can stick in the outfield. There's also questions about just how his body's going to hold up, how his swing is going to work with such a large frame, but he's just performing right now. You know, These are the same kinds of questions we had for guys like Aaron Judge, and he's obviously made it work, and, and not every massive outfielder is going to make it work, but maybe that's a bit of a market inefficiency right now. You know, maybe people are too worried about that and that isn't as big of a concern or it shouldn't be as big of a concern as it is these days. So I think I think it's fair to look at this as the Nationals getting a solid return and some some high-level talent and really shooting their farm system up the rankings and, and really kick-starting the rebuild there. And I think it's also easy to look at this and say they didn't get fair value and the Padres took advantage of their situation Obviously, they cleared out their farm. The Padres are now the lowest-ranked farm in our system by a good margin. Uh, but, I mean, at, at, <laughs> it gets you Juan Soto. Like, you can't be... At some point, you have to start stop worrying about the farm system rankings and just say, we are, our window is open right now. We're trying to contend. The Dodgers are really hard to catch up with. And one of these years, 
the D-backs are going to get good or the Giants are going to start spending money and, and they're going to be up there as well. So we don't have forever here. But we gotta we gotta step it up and, and this is what we do. This is we push this button, get Juan Soto. And not to even mention many of their other deadline acquisitions of Josh Hader and Brandon Drury and extending Joe Musgrove and uh, I know there's one I'm missing. Uh, they got Cam Gallagher. Good for him. <laughs> um one last point I want to make on Soto before I move on is we don't really have any idea whether the Padres will be able to extend Soto. I tend to doubt it. Preller has, has surprised us before, but it looks a little tough. So they extended Joe Musgrove five years and $100 million. It's going to be straight $20 million each season. And they still have Machado and Tatis on, on the books. Tatis is on the books forever. Machado's still got quite some time as well. Um, Juan Soto is going to be a free agent after the 2024 season. And as I mentioned before, he's going to be making considerable money both next season and 2024. So it's not like it's not like he's going from league minimum to suddenly he needs $40 million a year. There's going to be kind of a ramp up here, uh, but it's going to get especially hairy when he hits free agency and he wants to start setting some records here as as he is <laughs> entitled to do. He's one of the best young players we've ever seen. So between Machado, Tatis and Musgrove in, in 2025, those three will be making a combined $70 million. And in 2027, Tatis's contract is a little bit backloaded. It increases to $75 million. After that, Musgrove comes off the books and it bumps it down to, because he's making $20 million a year, it bumps it down to $55 for Tatis and Machado. And the next year, Machado comes off the books and brings his $30 million off. But that's two years where they have three guys combined making $70 to $75 million. And you're talking about adding Juan Soto's $35 to $40 million on top of that. So you're looking at committing at least, you know, on the low end here, $105, $110 million to four guys on your roster for two seasons. That's really dangerous territory for a team like the Padres that hasn't really proven that they're going to be huge spenders year after year. They've been really luxury tax conscious. We're not talking about the Dodgers here where they can, or the Mets where they just don't care and they're just going to blow past it and go buy the guys they need. This is the Padres. They don't have this track record and it's hard to really project them to act like those teams until they prove us otherwise. It's also kind of getting into Angels territory, you know. Part of the Angels problem has been, well, the largest part of the Angels problem the last handful of years has been they keep choosing the wrong guys to give the big contracts to, and it hasn't worked out well for them at all. But in in, in that, you know, they're committing Trout's 35-40 million dollars a year. And on top of that, they've been adding an Anthony Rendon or an Albert Pujols or, or Justin Upton. For a while, it was all four of those guys. Or before that, Josh Hamilton, CJ Wilson. And once you have that much of your budget hold up in three guys, especially if one of them isn't performing or two of them aren't performing or Trout's hurt or anything like that, it becomes really hard to field a, a competitive roster to fill those other 22 spots that you need to fill. So that's kind of the territory the Padres would be Stepping, stepping their toes into if they were to extend Soto. I think for right now, that, that's a, a problem for future future Padres, future Preller. Right now, enjoy Juan Soto. It's going to be electric once he and Tatis are in the lineup together. And it's going to be truly special. Uh, that, that could be two future Hall of Famers right there. Soto is on a much better start than Tatis because Tatis is having issues staying on the field. But they're both just 23, I believe. And Incredible talents, going to be so fun to watch. So just enjoy it for now. 
don't worry too much about the contract stuff until, you know, next offseason, maybe. All right, so there's the Soto recap. If you want more, there is more written up in that Roundup article that will be linked below. I guess we're going to go from there into the Eric Hosmer trade, which was the first of our four uh, rejected trades here. And so what happened here was originally Eric Hosmer was included in the Juan Soto trade. And there was a bit of a holdup because the Nationals were on Eric Hosmer's no trade list. And he eventually just said, no, I'm not going there. And so this left the Padres kind of scrambling. You know, they they have this deal agreed to in principle for Soto and Josh Bell. And they're not about to rework it just because of Eric Hosmer. Right. They, they had kind of the plan B where Luke Voigt goes to Nationals instead. OK, but they're not about to jeopardize getting Juan Soto just because of Eric Hosmer. So now they're scrambling just to get get rid of him. They have zero leverage because everyone in the league knows that they don't have room for him on the roster now. They got to get rid of him. They're, they're doing everything they can and, and that they're not going to let him nix the, the Juan Soto deal entirely. So in comes Heimblum. And Heimblum and the Red Sox had a really interesting deadline. I don't think they quite did everything they wanted to do. Uh, but they were kind of trying to thread the line as, as a lot of teams have been doing lately and trying to buy and sell. And Heimblum just has such a great knack for picking up value where he can we saw it year after year with the rays and now we're seeing it with the red Sox, and he can do it with some financial might as well and so like i said he smells blood in the water the padres have no leverage they need to get rid of this guy and would you look at that the red Sox haven't gotten consistent production at first base so they pick up eric hosmer who we had as negative 35.2 million and two prospects, outfielder Corey Rosier at 1.8 million, and second baseman Max Ferguson at 1.2 million. And the kicker, they get the Padres to eat down Eric Hosmer's contract down to the major league minimum for each of the four years of team control remaining. So that's $44 million. So that pushes Eric Hosmer's value positive. It's positive 8.8 .8 million. He still has a little bit of field value. He's shown some flashes, and he's a decent defensive first baseman with like a league average bat. It's not super valuable. We're talking about $8.8 over four years for the guy making the league minimum. That's, that's not much. But it's some positive value. And so you're getting that and the two prospects, and all they gave up was one prospect, Jay Groom, at $3.5 So this was rejected by the model. We had too much going to the Red Sox uh, compared to how much they were giving up, just the 3.5. Uh, but it's easy to see why, you know, this doesn't, this isn't a miss by the model. I, I mean, I guess you could argue that if anything, we were maybe a, a teensy bit high on Eric Hosmer, that his value should have been lower. He should have been further negative. I guess you can make that argument, but I think in general, it's just a case of AJ Preller needed to get a Hosmer off the, off the books. I believe there were 10 teams that he just couldn't trade him to at all. And probably a whole bunch of others just had no interest in him, even, even for free. And so he took the offer he could get. And, you know, he's probably happy to get Jay Groom out of it. And the Red Sox are happy to get a couple of prospects as well as taking a chance on Eric Osmer essentially for free. So he'll he'll just be a stopgap. I don't think they have any expectations of him to be an all-star or anything, but he's a decent stopgap while they wait for a couple of prospects to get to the bigs because Bobby Dalbeck, Franchi Cordero, those guys haven't been working for them at first base. So... That explains the first rejected trade of the deadline for us, or, or the first one of the four, I guess I should say. Uh, let's stick with the Red Sox, though, and go to the second one we're going to talk about. 
Uh, the Red Sox acquired catcher Reese McGuire, who we had at $3.8 million, and either cash or a player to be named later. That part of it's not yet known. From the Chicago White Sox, in exchange for Jake Diekman, who we had at negative 5.3. So negative 5.3 to positive 3.8, plus cash or a player to be named later. So lopsided, rejected. What happened here? first part that needs to be pointed out is the White Sox had a lot uh, a roster jam uh, a log jam on their roster there that's that's how you say that <laughs> um, behind the plate Yasmani Grandal needed to be activated he was on the injured list but he was healthy now and so they had previously been using Sebi Zavala and Reese McGuire but Sebi Zavala is, both of those guys are out of options and Sebi Zavala has been hitting very well and Reese McGuire has not he's been a glove only kind of guy and so he was the odd man out. He got forced off the roster. And the White Sox needed some left-handed relief depth because Aaron Bummer's out longer than expected and Garrett Crochet's out for the season. So, okay, that makes some sense. And it's okay. I, I think I would be open to hearing uh, kind of an argument that we had Reese McGuire too high. You know, he is out of options. He is a glove-only guy, and it's not even glove-first at this point. He, he's many years away from showing any kind of offensive ability at the big league level. So he is really just a glove-only kind of guy. He's got a good glove, but he's a glove-only. And, yeah, they, they needed a, a lefty in Diekman. But the issue is Diekman has been horrible. <laughs> Diekman has been very bad for the Red Sox after being pretty mediocre for the A's last year. And this is kind of just who he is. It's not... It's not that, he, oh, he's having one bad year and we can get him back to who he's always been. This is kind of who he is. He's streaky. He has stretches where he just can't find the zone and, and can't keep the ball in the park. And then he'll have stretches where he's just utterly dominant for a couple weeks. And so maybe the White Sox have some level of confidence that he can, they can get him back to that level of dominance. But that's that's a bit of a risk. You know, he's getting up there in years and, and he's never been a consistent guy. And he's earning... It's not a ton of money, but he's guaranteed three and a half million, or excuse me, four and a half million in 2023 if you include the buyout on his 2024 uh, team option. So he's pretty clearly underwater. So even if you had Reese McGuire as a zero, as you know, just roster fodder, backup catcher, no bat, out of options, bump him down to zero all the way down there. Even if you have him that low, it's pretty clear that Diekman's underwater. They should have at least gotten the Red Sox to eat some of the cash there, and that would have made it a whole lot closer. So that's deal number two. Next, we are going to talk about Jordan Groshans and the Toronto Blue Jays. So the Blue Jays acquired right-handed pitchers Anthony Bass at $1.4 million and Zach Pop at $0.1 million, as well as a player to be named later, from the Miami Marlins in exchange for infielder Jordan Groshans, who he had at 12.9. This one's pretty simple. As I mentioned before, Groshans was higher than he should have been because we haven't had all of the updated prospect evaluations from our sources yet he's having a terrible terrible year uh, he's always been kind of a, a, an interesting prospect you know a bit more raw than than most and and some people were higher on him than others but this year he's made it to the big leagues or excuse me he hasn't made it to the big leagues he's made it to triple a and some of his numbers look okay the plate discipline is is improved it looks pretty good but zero power whatsoever. In almost 300 plate appearances, he has one homer. And this is a guy who, you know, he's not he's not an O'Neill Cruz by any means, but he was supposed to have some decent power, both raw power and game power. And he's projected to be a third baseman more than a, more than a shortstop, more likely. And you can't have a third baseman with just no power like that. So 
pretty clear that there's a downward arrow on his value. And uh, once we get more information from prospect sources, once we get updated values, uh, he, he would be much, much lower than this. And there's probably an argument that the model was kind of low on Anthony Bass, which is a bit of another another question mark here because it's tough to decide what exactly teams value in relievers. Anthony Bass doesn't have any kind of a track record, but he's been very, very good this year. And he's under affordable team control for next year. So it's it's a bit tough to say, to some extent, yeah, teams value track record. That's why the Braves traded for Rysel Iglesias. That's why the Padres traded for Josh Hader, despite both of those guys having kind of down years. Teams value track record for their late in guys. Uh, but then they'll make deals like this, where it's they're clearly placing a lot of emphasis on their current value. So it's a bit it's a bit tough to suss that out. We're going to take a closer look at the relief model. Um, and then additionally, Zach Pop, that's a guy where he's got a power sinker, and you know it doesn't necessarily show up in the numbers, but uh, some of the advanced metrics and you know pitch data stuff plus things like that really love his sinker, and, and he might be able to be might be might be a guy who outperforms kind of his base peripherals. And so that's just not factored into the model right now. Something we could look into in the future is looking into specific pitches or, or further data like that. Uh, but right now it's just not factored in. So that one's pretty easily explained. And then finally, I already touched on it earlier, but Rysel Iglesias. I think it's pretty clear that his value is underwater. I feel pretty confident about that. And I talked with John and we're both pretty much on board there. Because he was just signed as a free agent. He was signed to a four-year, $58 million contract. And that's typically about the high end of what relievers make. That, you know, that's that's along the lines of what Liam Hendricks made in his free agent deal. And he was coming off a similarly just absolutely dominant season like Iglesias did last year. Um, that's along the lines of what Aroldis Chapman got on a yearly deal. Of Kenley Jansen, Craig Kimbrell. You know, th th that's kind of the going rate is around that. 13 to 16 million dollar a year uh, for elite closers and so there's not much of a willingness to pay more than that that's kind of the, the top of the market rate so his he was pretty close to zero surplus when he signed that and then he's had a bit of a down year this year i, I know some people will point to like strikeout minus walk percentage and other metrics that that show that he's he's still pretty similar to the same guy but his velo's down and his other peripherals have taken a step back. His ERA is worse. And obviously ERA isn't the, the most obvious indicator. And, and it's not even an input that we use. Uh, but just kind of his numbers across the board are down. And he looks good instead of elite. And so it makes sense that he would be underwater. We had him at negative 8.9 million, which is really, it really just suggests he's a couple million underwater each of the next couple of years, which isn't that bad. And, and it's not it's not saying that he's a, a terribly sunk underwater contract, but He's making a couple million more each of the next couple years as he should be because uh, especially because the projections kind of trickle down you know if he's having a poor 2022 season then his 2023 2024 2025 projections each get a little bit worse as well and his contract is a little bit backloaded so that's that makes it even tougher but the braves gave up actual talent for him it was right-handed pitcher jesse chavez who's just a veteran reliever whatever he's at 0 0.8 million and left-handed pitcher Tucker Davidson, who was a decent prospect at 6.8. And so this one rejected. Like I said earlier, it's kind of along the lines of the Mark Melanson deal the Braves made. They seem to place some kind of premium on proven late-inning arms and, and not caring so much about the financial aspect of it. And maybe Tucker Davidson was a bit high in the model. Uh, but then, even then, you know, it's kind of along the lines of the Diekman deal. Even if you 
bring Davidson down, it's still pretty clear that Iglesias is underwater and there's kind of a mismatch here. It was also a bit of a buzzer beater, so it's possible they just said, ah, screw it. We'll, we'll take the guy who's a little bit underwater. We want his field value. It's okay if it's not totally matched. Uh, you know, this is, as John often says, when you get to the deadline, trades are the only way you can acquire somebody. There is no free agency. This is your only option. So there might be a bit, uh, teams are more willing to meet a higher price, essentially. So yeah, that I think that'll do it for this episode. Uh, it's our, it went about twice as long as I wanted it to because that's just how we work here. Um, as I mentioned, there will be links in the description to or in the show notes to both John's takeaways from the deadline article, um, as well as the roundup article. And I'll link the Robbie Hyde live stream. That was a fun one. Go check him out. He's he's fun on YouTube. And yeah, as I mentioned at the start of the episode schedule from here is a bit shaky but expect at least a few weeks of uh, of quiet from us before we really start ramping back up for the off season so i want to thank you all so much i know i usually have just a scripted outro but first i want to specifically thank you all so much for all the support it was a really fun deadline a really successful deadline uh, our, our we, we kind of just took off <laughs> thanks in part to jeff passan and and other blue check marks after him uh, we, we really got a lot more publicity and tons more Twitter followers, tons more site users. Uh, it, it was really, really fun, really exciting to see that something that we started just a few years ago has already gotten to this point, and it's only going to get better from here. So thank you all so much. Welcome to any new followers, new listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us on the ride. And uh, yeah, so all right, scripted outro time. <laughs> That'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back sometime. I don't know exactly when yet, but we'll be back sometime to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the rest of the season. Thanks, guys. <laughs>